And a fairly rocky start to our introduction there with Rovix uh, somehow fading out. But you're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show. My name is Jane. Thanks very much to the Doing Time show just prior to this one with Peter and Marissa uh, womaning and manning the microphones. As you know, Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. And you can follow us through a variety of sources. You've got Twitter at hashtag BZELive, at Beyond Zero News, or one word, um, and at Beyond Zero Emissions Facebook. You can also go to our website, bze.org.au, to find all the podcasts. Uh, and between this show and our sister show on Friday morning, uh, that's two shows we host on 3CR, you'll find podcasts of talks with a who's who of climate change. Now, again, I'm going to put the cart a little bit before the horse and uh, give you a promo for a talk which is happening tonight. Uh, it's at the McCoy Building at the University of Melbourne. It, I'm, I'm bringing this up at the beginning of the show rather than at the end as we usually do because it starts at 6.30. Uh, so if you're wanting to go, you might have to skedaddle out the door right now. It's Andrew Lamb talking to BZE. Andrew Lamb is from a company called MagEffects, uh, an unpronounceable name, but it's an impressive Australian company and they're talking, he's talking about their Australia's most energy dense lithium ion battery, which is so impressive. They, the company, call it the TARDIS. So I gather it packs a lot into a very small space. That's 6.30pm tonight at the McCoy Building 200 at the University of Melbourne. It's in the Fritz Lowy Theatre. Entry is via the ramp to the first floor and that's on the corner of Elgin and Swanson Streets, Carlton. This is part of a monthly technical discussion series organised by BZE and uh, if you go to bze.org.au you'll see these talks on um, our YouTube channel afterwards. So enough of the preliminaries, uh, let's get stuck into the show. We have a Radio EcoShock uh, broadcast to bring to you firstly tonight. Uh, Radio EcoShock is a Canadian radio show hosted by a guy called Alex Smith. Vivian and I commend it to you. And he's talking to two people tonight about the Indonesian fires which are raging in uh, Indonesia. And um, Alex Smith gives uh, a uh, reasonably long introduction with some truly staggering figures uh, about the effect on the carbon budget from these fires. Have a listen to this. Over the past few weeks, planet Earth has experienced a severe climate crisis. It hasn't even made the front page of newspapers or the top story on TV news. This catastrophe will hasten warming of oceans and land, adding to rising seas, threaten more species with extinction, And it will change our whole view of environmental action and what we need to do to save the climate. Massive fires have been burning in Indonesia, 
In satellite images, large parts of that country and Malaysia and Singapore are buried under smoke. Red dots of fires and hot spots want to cover the whole map of the islands. In a few minutes, I'm going to bring you interviews from two very informed people. We get a report directly from the scene with Dr. Daniel Muriadarso at the Center for International Forestry Research in Bogor, Indonesia. Then I'll thrash through this crisis with one of the long-standing reporters on tropical forests, Monga Bay founder Rhett Butler. But first, we need to talk. These are not common forest fires, as experienced in Western North America, as bad as those were. For one thing, unless climate change prevents it, Western forests are expected to grow back, recapturing some of the carbon. Indonesian tropical forests are not expected to return. They're being replaced with either palm oil plantations or just waste land. At least half of the hundreds of major fires in Indonesia are burning peat, you know, like the peat bales purchased by gardeners, or the peat formerly used in the Middle Ages as fuel. It's a thick layer of very compressed vegetation built up over long ages. About 12% of the land in Southeast Asia is peat swamp forest. 83% of that is in Indonesia. Peat there can be 1 meter deep or 3 feet deep or up to 12 meters or 40 feet deep. And when peat dries out, it begins to emit both carbon dioxide and the more powerful greenhouse gas methane. When peat burns, it releases a mix of toxic dust and gases with grave effects on human health, animal health, and the climate of the world. You can't put out a peat fire with a water bomber or ground crews. The fire goes underground. It smolders and smokes until seasonal rains or snow comes. Some peat fires last for years, resurfacing every year. Tropical peat fires release phenomenal amounts of greenhouse gases. Calculations by the World Resources Institute find that the Indonesian fires over the past three months have released more greenhouse gases than the entire annual emissions of highly industrialized Germany. For the past month or so, Indonesia has been emitting more greenhouse gases daily than the entire United States economy. This is a burst of carbon not seen since the last great Indonesian fires in 1997. The Indonesian greenhouse burst throws off all previous calculations of how much carbon we could still burn before crossing the two-degree unsafe level. It will force a redraw of our models and will create, sooner or later, more swift and unpleasant surprises for all of us in our climate system. The unknowns loom larger. Radio Ecoshock. Some of us do know that our actions now are determining the fate of the planet for the next few thousand years at least. But our plans and actions and environmentalism have to change. Previously, in my own ignorance, I suggested there are two major stages of climate change. In the first, human greenhouse gas emissions, mainly from burning fossil fuels, create climate disruption and then a hotter world. This is a process we can hope to change as coal goes bankrupt and renewable energy becomes the main source of power. Or it might change because economically recoverable oil runs out, peak oil. We're talking about the scale of human agency. After that, very large natural systems operating as positive feedbacks kick in. For example, scientists know that once giant glaciers begin to retreat, in some parts of the world, simple geography dictates that nothing can stop them from melting into the sea. 
NASA says we are already at that point with the Totten Glacier in East Antarctica. Another example would be melting frozen methane from the seabed, known as clathrates. When these big so-called natural systems kick in, there may be little humans can do but run toward the mountains and the poles, trying to adapt while killing off the fossil fuel civilization that makes it worse and worse. But now we see there is a third force. The small number of campaigners who work trying to save tropical forests have been trying to tell us this for years, but they've always been a smaller party among the environmentalists and scientists who struggle to stop the orgy of fossil fuel burning. Now we have to open our minds to a horrible new truth. If humans continue to convert the gigantic biomass of tropical forests and peat bogs into carbon in the sky, it may not matter if you install solar panels on your home or stop flying. The current crisis in Indonesia shows us that a less developed country can create more greenhouse gases than the largest industrialized countries in the world. Think about what that means. One result is that environmental campaigners and the public have to quickly become global citizens rather than nationalists. Let's admit it. Hardly anyone in the Americas and few in Europe know anything about Indonesia. We don't need to know. Our societies are self-contained. We go to work. We hope to buy things. We have our family. Who cares? I know some of you will be surprised to learn Indonesia is the fourth most populous country in the world. There are at least 250 million people spread out over thousands of volcanic islands north of Australia and south of the Philippines. Actually, the population is not spread out very much. In 2012, 141 million Indonesians lived on the single island of Java. That's the real center of the country and of the culture. Periodically, the central government in Jakarta, which is on the island of Java, tries to persuade more people to move out to the less populated islands like Sumatra or their part of Borneo, known as Kalimantan. We'll hear about Kalimantan in our guest interviews. That's where the dense and toxic smoke has covered everything for over 100 days. The Indonesian government considered an evacuation, but hasn't been able to mount it. Kids play in the smoke while hospitals fill up with babies and the elderly. That's another side of this disaster. At least half a million Indonesians have been hospitalized due to breathing difficulties and other health problems caused by the smoke. If the Indonesian economy managed to grow at all this year, all that was lost. Due to the damage from these fires, Indonesians pay now and directly for this crisis. We will all pay, possibly for centuries, for the greenhouse gases released. This isn't the only terrible climate news recently. Perhaps we'll have time to summarize more of it toward the end of the show. But as the UK Guardian newspaper columnist George Monbiot wrote this week, the fires in Indonesia are quote the greatest environmental disaster of the 21st century so far. Let's go to our guests. We'll start with a view from inside Indonesia, and then get an activist perspective. We've reached one of the top forestry scientists in Indonesia. Dr. Daniel Murdiarso is senior scientist at the Center for Forestry Research, or C4. He's led intergovernmental panel on climate change reports. He has served as deputy minister of the environment for the government of Indonesia. Dr. Murdi Arso, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hi, how are you? Very good, and I'm pleased to talk with you. Could you start by just describing the fire and smoke situation in Indonesia this year? 
sort of how many fires are there or hot spots and where are they located? Well, this year fire is quite extensive. Uh, it spread over the island of Sumatra. There are three big provinces like Riau, Jambi, and South Sumatra. They are all blanketed by smoke these days. Um, the hotspots ranging between 200 to 400 uh, points in the past three months or so, and fire still raging as we speak. And in Kalimantan, part of the Borneo uh, island, uh, the number of hotspots is more or less the same, but picking up the highest about two weeks ago, about 400 hotspots in west and central Kalimantan. Is the driving force behind the fires agricultural clearing, forestry operations, or clearing for palm oil plantations? Well, it's a mix of everything, uh, small and large, but we hardly seen any evidence of logging these days. So it's unlike the 1997 fire was following the logging operation, but these days it's mainly bush and secondary uh, vegetation, clear up for agriculture or plantations. Yeah, the, the same thing happened in, in both Sumatra and Kalimantan. Indonesia is the world's largest exporter of palm oil, I understand. So who is buying it and what are they using it for? Well, the most importer of, of uh, CPO, the crude palm oil, these days is China and uh, India and uh, also Europe and the U.S., Depending on, on these countries, the, the way of palm oil is used is ranging from cosmetic kind of stuff, household use and cooking oil, edible oil, but also for biofuel. So these countries uh, use the oil palm, which is very productive in, in terms of yield in uh, per unit area compared with other uh, vegetative or biofuel uh, produced in Europe or in the U.S. Yes, I think even the Dutch were burning palm oil in power plants as a, a green fuel in the sense that it can be replanted and, and regrown. I want to ask you about climate change now. Forest fires and peat fires have been an annual occurrence for Indonesia at least since the previous great El Nino year of 1997-98. How does this outbreak compare to recent years and to that 97-98 fire season? Well, yes, as I said, the um, 1997 fire, it was also El Nino year, very strong one, prolonged. And uh, at the same time, the conversion of tropical forests was taking place. So uh, following the logging fire happened and then the extension of agricultural land. But uh, this year, in the past few years, is mainly bush and secondary forest kind of fire. It's, it's hard to see any logging operation uh, at the moment. The Western press is reporting that with these fires, greenhouse emissions from Indonesia this year have now surpassed those of the entire U.S. economy. Do you find that credible, and what calculations of emissions do you have? Well, we have not finished our estimate yet because it's hard to see the precise area burn. As, as the smoke is still blanketing the area, you, you cannot see it with Landsat kind of product. You can guess with uh, MODIS or even lower resolution, but it's, it's quite crude. So the, the most important component to estimate emission is really the emission factor of this material burn 
and then the, the area. And if it's involved, and it is the case involving peatland, then you need to know uh, the depth of peat burn. So that's that's very crucial number to get a better estimate of emission. I think this peat fire angle is, is very important. I'm wondering if you could explain the mechanism of how and why peat is burning and maybe give us an idea of the volume of peat that could eventually burn in Indonesia. Right. Well, once it is exposed, when the peat swamp forest is cut down, and then people start to drain it for agricultural activities, then the, the peat are exposed and oxidized and dried out and is, is prone to fire. So even, even without fire, draining peatland is also emitting greenhouse gases. But if it is extensive, then it is very sensitive to fire. The first 30 centimeters kind of layer is, is very sensitive to it, but it does not mean that you, you can only burn the, the first few centimeters surface, but uh, it can go deep down in the pit if it is dry enough. That's why we have smoldering instead of rigging uh, fire. It's, it's very uh, lack of oxygen, so you have a lot of smoke in the pit fires. And I've seen that they can go on for years, and they're very difficult to put out. I'm wondering, in your opinion, are the Indonesian peat fires perhaps a preview of what could happen in the Arctic as it warms and peat thaws there in the far north? Well, the the process is a bit different because in releasing greenhouse gases in, in peatland, you need to dry it out and, and burn. But in, in the Arctic permafrost, you only need to warm it up. Yes, if, if the emission of greenhouse gases elsewhere warm the atmosphere up, then the permafrost will be thawed, and that's the time when you release methane, which is more disastrous than, than CO2. It's got 25 times global warming potential than carbon dioxide. Let's talk about public health. What are the smoke conditions in Indonesia now? You were just in Jakarta. Is it smoky there? Uh, well... We are in Bogor, even better here, but uh, I was in the spot two weeks ago. This is very, very detrimental. You can see a lot of kids playing around with no awareness about the danger of this haze and, and smoke, a toxic one. Although they are uh, out of school, but still people are roaming around the city. And, and I think the worst impact of haze and smoke these days is the health instead of, well, of course, greenhouse gas emission, but uh, the impact to human health is appalling. It's about 43 million people exposed to haze these days, and half, half a million are affected with these respiratory problems. So uh, I think if you turn that numbers into monetary term, the economic loss is, is substantial. Can we expect excess deaths could result from the smoke this year? Well, there are casualties, cases in, in Riau uh, province, in South Sumatra. I think that death toll is 10 at the moment. And uh, young baby and elderly people is uh, very vulnerable to diseases uh, driven by, by smoke. How far has the smoke spread in Southeast Asia? What's happening in Malaysia and Singapore? 
Well, it's, it's not much reported. I think they are affected uh, these days, but not like 1997. It was started in July, and the uh, easterly wind affects Singapore very badly. Now it's, it's happening uh, a bit later, so the wind uh, direction is different with 1997-98 fires. I think the, the disruption of, of lights and everything is, is less than the 1997 fires. This is Radio Ecoshock from Bogor, Indonesia. Our guest is forest expert Daniel Murdiarso. What is the Indonesian president, known as Jakawi, saying about this, and what government solutions are being offered, Daniel? Well, as far as uh, we hear now, the permits to open up the pitland is being reviewed. I think the government will have a very tough measure in terms of issuing new permits in developing pitland especially. They are aware that this is a big mistake to give permits uh, to manage pitland, which is quite sensitive to drought and, and fire. What are the challenges at the local level to reducing or ending these annual fires? I think the, the hard part of it, if uh, the central government has this kind of policy, then it is not followed by the local government. That's that's uh, very hard to, to have this realized. Uh, the way I, I see it, what's happened in, in the region, it seems that there is no significant move from the local government whatsoever compared with what the, the central government is trying to, to help out. But it is really uh, very much depend how the local government uh, reacted and, and responds to this uh, call. Daniel, do you think this problem is manageable, or will Indonesia continue to be one of the world's top emitters of greenhouse gases? <laughs> it's a hard question. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's happening year after year, even in less strong uh, El Nino years, it's also happened. I think this decentralized uh, governance issue is, is very crucial here to try to help out how this issue is going to be solved in the future. Strong government in the central is not enough if there is no response from, from the local government, business people who deals with the local government, etc. So it's, it's very complicated. Uh, processes with regard to economic, the political economy, even local political economy. Do you think this year's burst of greenhouse gas emissions from Indonesia will be raised at the Paris Climate Talks in December? And if so, is there a role for the international community? Well, uh, this year, countries, most countries are submitting their what is called INDC. This is the Intended National Determined uh, Contribution in terms of mitigating climate change, including reducing emission. And I'm, I'm a bit disappointed that the issue of haze and uh, fire is not mentioned in the Indonesian INDC. So, yeah, it's hard to predict what's going to happen in the next round of negotiation because one single fire like this is really uh, off-scale all the uh, prediction about emission reduction and outnumbered all those emission estimates from every sector. You know, I'm thinking about Paris and I'm wondering if there was some sort of international funding mechanism to reduce carbon, 
however that might work, perhaps that would help local governments make better decisions because there would actually be a bit of money for not clearing out the peat. Yeah, well, the the Green Climate Fund is has been discussed and pledged, but it's it's only promise. Countries longing to see this to be realized in in Paris with a new uh, agreement uh, for towards 2020 and beyond. So I think, as I mentioned earlier, the realization is very much at the central government level, and I think it's timely to uh, propagate this message about the potential of, of local government to get involved in this process. Please tell us about the Center for International Forestry Research, where you are, what it does, and the resources that it offers. Okay, well, uh, C4 is uh, one of the 15 CGIAR centers, the Consultative Group of International Agricultural Research, and we are specializing on forestry, landscape, and uh, people depending on, on forests and uh, across the tropics. We work in three different kind of uh, portfolio dealing with governance of forests, uh, livelihood and forests, and forest and environment. So we basically work mainly on the policy issues and to some extent also on the biophysical aspect of it. We've been supported by a number of countries uh, with an annual budget of about 50 million a year. And what we do is really providing credible information about those issues related to forest and forest uh, people. And um, hopefully this will be useful for government and community at large to make their decision, planning, etc. Is there anything I've missed that you would like to tell our listeners? Yes, uh, I think um, this time around with regard to fire is is very much a kind of uh, waking up bell to to do uh, to deal with uh, forest and land fire in different way because usually people are talking about firefighting when it happens but maybe it's it's very strategic now to think about fire prevention so this should be a long run kind of plan so that We are not surprised if things happen like this every time. You know, it might interest you to know that we had massive fires in western North America, and in the village where I live, we had to take in 250 fire refugees, uh, some of whom lost their homes. It was smoky for several weeks. We couldn't really go outside. So I have a a fair feeling for what's happening in Indonesia as well. Yeah, well, it's terrible, terrible. I was there two weeks ago in in Palangkaraya, the capital of of central Kalimantan, is so bad. And I was only five days there. They've been exposed to a situation like this for more than 100 days. So uh, government are trying to rescue them out. But again, the, the area which is safe is not ready, and there's a lot of problem too. So uh, it's difficult to cope. Uh, with this difficult situation in a relatively short period. So, as I said, prevention is very crucial. We've been speaking with Dr. Daniel Murdiarso, the internationally known Indonesian forest expert. He's currently the senior scientist at the Center for Forestry Research, located in Bogor, Indonesia. Dr. Murdiarso, thank you so much for sharing your valuable time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All the best. I'm Alex Smith, reporting for Radio Ecoshock. 
if you're not absolutely furious, you're really not paying enough attention. The world's a shambles. So come along and join us in being active, and together we can make this world a more ethical place to live. Climate action, climate justice. Don't mind the time, the hour. In December, the governments of 190 countries arrive in Paris to discuss a new global agreement to stop dangerous climate change. Tricia joins their discussions with a series of special interviews and analysis, starting Monday, November 16 till 28, and continuing into December. From 8 a.m. till 8:30 a.m. weekdays and on Saturdays. The warnings have been issued. If we don't hold the line on emissions, and I'm wondering, do you see? climate change will be irreversible. Sinking so low, Sinking so low. Stay tuned as 3 breakfast programs join the global conversation. Yes, and that's one I trust you already have in your diary. That's the People's Climate March on the 27th of November in Melbourne. That's Friday the 27th of November convening outside the State Library. So uh, that last piece we heard was uh, courtesy of Radio Ecoshock and Alex Smith, the Vancouver Community Radio Sh- radio show and uh, next up we've got Tim Buckley in conversation with Vivian Tim Buckley's got a rather dry uh, uh, organisation that he works for he's a director at the Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis but he's got some fascinating opinions, let's jump in. Tim Buckley is someone I've wanted to meet for a while His writings on energy financing put him ahead of the pack in my opinion. He's not afraid to call out delusional investments in coal and he shows up the IEA for sitting on the fence at least that's the way I see it he was with Citigroup for years and now is the Australasian Director of IEFA that is the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis now uh, Beyond Zero's new report, report tries to reposition Australia as a renewable energy superpower and it's just out. So is Beyond Zero Emissions just dreaming superpower, my goodness? <laughs> Not at all. In my view, the um, world energy markets and particularly the world electricity markets are transforming before our eyes and that's what gets me excited. I look at what China's done in the last five to ten years and I think it's nothing short of staggering in terms of how they're transitioning and transforming their electricity grid. And what gets me excited today is that India is looking to replicate what China has achieved. Mm. Well, Beyond Zero has created a report that talks about business opportunities for Australia. It's very positive. Jobs and taking advantage of an inevitable transition. I know the authors and I know they're as worried as most of us are about climate change, but the report hardly mentions climate change. Do you think this is why? in 2015. Do you think this is wise? 
Um, in Australia, I think it's necessary. Mm. At the end of the day, we don't want to get dragged into a debate, is climate change real, is it man-made? Uh, for me, it's mm. an obvious answer, but it's also irrelevant. I look at it from a financial market perspective, and that's the way BZE is doing it as well, to say, look, it's an inevitable transition. There are costs and there are opportunities. Australia needs to grab hold of those opportunities, and there are very strong financial reasons to do so. But the climate change motive is what's pushing into international bodies now to start insisting on targets is that going to have an influence you know in the boardrooms of australia is that what they're worried about um with due respect to your question that brings an a western world thinking china is motivated as much by pollution air pollution particulate pollution water pollution those are key drivers in the last 20 months china's premier has been absolutely focused on air pollution and particulate pollution because he and the country will cover the costs of the health implications if they don't deal with it and he'll probably be ousted from government so at the end of the day the motive in china the biggest market in the world the biggest economy in the world is all about pollution it's about energy security and then if we digress to India, um, they're not even really focused on pollution at the moment. They're just focusing on energy security. They cannot afford to rely on imported fossil fuels to grow their economy. So the motive for each of the different major countries around the world is very different. So your question assumes a developed country perspective. Um, it's obviously what America and Europe are looking at. But to me, the motives are very different. The outcome is actually why I would argue it's inevitable because no matter whether you're bringing an air pollution aspect, energy security or just financial market inevitability, they all come to the same conclusion. Well, this is a time of tremendous change. I've read in one of your articles you said tremendous change in energy markets and the coal industry. And you say, I think in one of your articles, that coal is in structural decline. decline. I'd like you to explain what structural decline really means. But also yesterday, apparently, the resource minister, Josh Schreidenberg, said that the government was still behind the Galilee Basin mine. And uh, the reason was that it would help two billion people stop cooking on wood and dung and and fires and they could even use the Northern Australia Development Fund to finance the rail line and the infrastructure and so on. So Prime Minister Turnbull has asked us to have agile responses. What do you think is a more agile response? Maybe to answer your question about structural decline, if we define coal the coal market I'm referring to as the seaborne traded coal market, the internationally traded coal market, that's actually only about 15% of world coal consumption. So I would argue the seaborne market is in absolute structural decline, that consumption peaked in 2013, 2014, and is declining now inevitably. And the seaborne market will lead the global coal market but the reason that might sound splitting hairs but India is going to use a lot more coal in five or ten years time than they are today mm. but where the energy minister of India makes a huge distinction is he wants to have zero thermal coal imports by 2020 so he will use more domestic coal and he'll use more wind, more solar, more hydro, more nuclear, more gas, but he's not going to rely on imported fossil fuel um, 
input into his electricity market. So given India is the third largest electricity market in the world, their coal consumption is still going up. So I would hesitate to say coal is already in structural decline globally, but seaborne coal markets are definitely in structural decline. And we've seen that Chinese imports of coal are down 30% year-to-date. Indian seaborne coal consumption in the last six months is down 6%. Japanese coal markets consumption in the last six months is down 4%. So they're the three largest importers of coal in the world and they're all now in decline. But, you know, citizen action groups, you know, they absolutely panic at the thought of the Galilee Basin mine being opened up and other mines like Rio Tinto at Bolga being extended. Um, it's it's creating a terrible panic in the country and um, I know I'm going to interview someone from Mackay Conservation Group, for example, about, you know, will they put up another court case because Greg Hunt has approved uh, the um, Galilee Basin Mine, Carmichael Mine and Josh Frydenberg's apparently right behind it. What do you have to say to those citizen groups? I think it's worth looking at how the new energy minister, Josh Frydenberg, has changed his tune even in the last two weeks. I'm actually very optimistic that with the change in Prime Minister, the Federal Government of Australia is now starting to look at the risks and starting to look at the opportunities. So when Josh Frydenberg was first um, elevated to Energy Minister, on the first day he said the North Australia Infrastructure Fund would have the Galilee as a priority focus because the department he inherited that day told him it was their number one focus. Mm -hmm. Two weeks later, Josh Frydenberg's interviewed and he's saying that the Galilee must stand on its own two feet. It will not be a priority project for taxpayer subsidies. Now, that is a huge change because at the end of the day, the Galilee is not commercially viable. It cannot stand on its own two feet. So for Josh Frydenberg to say that he's not going to extend taxpayer subsidies to it is effectively killing the project off, in my view. <laughs> Wonderful news. <laughs> what do you see as the drivers of the transition to energy self-sufficiency? I mean, that's probably answers itself. That people want energy self-sufficiency, but some countries are going to have more renewable energy cheaper than others. Um, and, and I think there are countries that need to develop you know poorer countries I've recently been to Laos for example they've got a lot of hydropower but then um, Timor I went to recently as well and uh, they just use diesel fuel for everything um, and I wanted to know how we could support our neighbours in that transition that's necessary for all of us with climate change in mind um I think the transition's inevitable, and if you look at countries like India, um, I'll keep coming back to it because it is the latest country and it's the third largest market in the world for electricity, and they're looking to transform. So the amount of investment that India is going to put into solar and wind over the next five, six, seven years is in the order of quarter of a trillion dollars. Now that's a trillion dollars, quarter of a trillion extra that China and America and Europe have been doing now for a couple of years. India is now doing it as well. So all of a sudden that will increase global installations of renewables by 20, 30, 40%. That's with India's influence alone. Why is that important? Because renewables require massive investment. The technology is still developing. The more installs you get, 
the more investment you get, the greater we, the greater acceleration in technology development, and the greater the economies of scale. So the more the cost comes down. Now, ultimately, if India drives the cost of renewables down, that will benefit the whole globe, and particularly, as you mentioned, smaller developing countries, mm-hmm. because at the moment the obstacle is the cost competitiveness of renewables versus coal. I'm sure I don't like to reveal my ignorance, but when people say the market will deal with these problems i always sort of feel markets it's it's too uh, chancy and surely we need to put in policies that will make sure things happen and uh, for example you know in the next decade i would like to see those developing countries to leapfrog the fossil fuel type path to development and be able to use renewable energy is there some role that a, a rich country like australia can pay Absolutely. I would caveat my comments to say I think the financial markets will inevitably drive the transition. The question is, is it fast enough to save the planet in terms of climate change? I would separate the two out because to me the inevitability is financial markets look for the cheapest viable product. And at the end of the day, the cost of solar is coming down 10 or 15% per annum. And so by definition, it is going to be more cost competitive in five years' time to use solar energy than grid-supplied coal-fired power plants, for example. And that will apply in any country with good solar radiation. But the purpose of the government and policy is to accelerate that transition to make it happen in a fast enough way such the road to Paris is a success and we get global, major global leaders getting behind it, accelerating the policy transition and accentuating the financial market response. Okay, well what about oil and gas? Um, BP forecast that will overtake Qatar in the, as the world's largest supplier of liquefied gas by 2018. Um, and there's shale oil to be fracked, and someone said in the paper the other day they called it Saudi Australia. So what about those two fossil fuels? Um, I think it's quite interesting watching the, um, the gas players globally unite and call now for a price on carbon. Effectively what they're doing, so the six major um, gas players in Europe about two months ago came out and called for a price on carbon as an effective policy mechanism. At the end of the day, they realise that um, policy action is inevitable and what they're doing is trying to differentiate themselves from the coal industry, for example. They're throwing the weakest member of the pack under um, to the lions, effectively, and coal is the obvious one to throw because it's the most polluting and the one most exposed to a policy response. But I think it's interesting how the pack, so the pack being the fossil fuel industry, is now dividing. The uh-huh. gas players are moving away from the coal players and realising a policy response is inevitable, and uh, I would agree with them. A policy response is inevitable. A price on carbon is inevitable, implicit or explicit. Global banks will have to are increasingly starting to acknowledge that. They're starting to price it in, and... Uh, that is all part of the policy response. So we've been talking about unburnable coal for quite a few months now, maybe two years. Um, do you think it's going to be the same case with these assets, um, gas and shale oil ga- uh, assets, will also remain unrecoverable? Well, I think we only have to look at the um, Curtis Island up at um, Gladstone in Queensland. Australia and Australian corporates have just invested 60 or $70 billion building the world's biggest 
gas LNG export facilities. And that, to me, is an absolute stranded asset. You only have to look at Origin's share price. Origin is one of the players in Curtis Island, in Gladstone, and their share price is down 80% in two or three years. Now, that is tens of billions of dollars of shareholder wealth destruction that's been perpetrated by the management and board of Origin Energy, which was one of Australia's biggest companies. So the market is telling you something has changed, and when you lose tens of billions of dollars... In the space of a couple of years, the market's telling it's changing very rapidly. I thought this interview was going to be rather dry, but it's very dramatic. Really, 80%, that's terrible. I didn't know that. Well, it's terrible in that the management and the board of that company failed to see the policy change that's inevitable. They failed to understand the technology change is inevitable, and they tried to resist it and use policy um, delays. They were working in conjunction with the federal government. The policy of the federal government was to delay the inevitable, and financial markets tell you that's a waste of shareholders' money trying to delay the inevitable. Mm. Well, we're talking to Tim Buckley from IEFA, and... You know, keep listening, listeners, because you might <laughs> learn quite a lot, which I am. Um, Tim, there is money to be made out of the transition to decarbonised e- economy. I think people have thought that and been very frustrated by the obstacles put in the way of renewable energy in Australia lately, last few years. But where do you think wise investors will put their money now? Um There are opportunities. Uh, The opportunities need to be assessed um, with the understanding that the technology change is still happening very, very rapidly. So with massive technology change, you actually have a lot of risk as well. So you have to be very careful about looking at how you profit from those opportunities. Um, And in Australia, you mentioned regulatory uncertainty. Changing policies all the time is really bad for business. So if you look at the history of investments in renewables and energy efficiency, for example, in Australia, it's not been a happy place. Mm. But then constant policy change means companies and corporate investments have not delivered on their expectations. Whereas India is um, calling for tens of billions of dollars of investment, in fact, 20, 30, 40 billion dollars of investment a year for the next 20 years. China has been investing 50 to 100 billion dollars a year in the transformation. And when you've got that policy certainty, when investors know that, for example, the Modi government is committed to renewables, they're willing to invest hundreds of billions of dollars and I would note that in India in renewables we've seen probably a hundred billion dollars of investment commitments by the global renewable industry into India just in the last eight months. That gets me excited Mm. about the rate of change that I was talking about earlier. Could you be a bit more specific what sort of things? I imagine wind farms would be one but what other? Well the one which um, the Modi government is most encouraging on they've set a policy that they want to have a hundred gigawatts of solar installed in the next seven years. 100 gigawatts is a is a um, $100 billion of investment. Mm. So you've had companies like Adani, ironically the proponent for the Galilee, has put forward $16 billion of investment in solar in India this year alone. SoftBank of Japan has put forward a proposition to invest $20 billion in India in solar in India Mm. Um, only two months ago. And we're getting company initiatives like that, not all as dramatic as that, but 
billions of dollars worth of investment from global leaders going into solar, but they're also doing it into wind, they're doing it into the grid, to grid efficiency, and I think increasingly energy efficiency as well. Well, my head's reeling with those numbers, they're huge, but um, what about back at home, when people talk about their superannuation fund, there's been a lot of people trying to divest them from the fossil fuel parts, but also, you know, in terms of quite prudent investment in um, renewable energy. But um, what do you think in ethical investors um, should look at? I think there's a whole range of opportunities. I, I look at the financial markets and I do financial analysis on it. There's 350, they talk about divestiture. They are really raising the pressure on all of the super funds to answer the question, is this the morally correct thing? Is it the financially correct thing? What is the fiduciary duty of the trustees over the long term? Now, for the trustees to actually be able to talk to 350, they have to have a policy. I don't really care whether they divest or whether they engage. They have to have a policy. The first step is actually to work out this is a serious long-term risk that's only going to go away through massive investment. So I want the trustees of these boards to actually have a policy, have a considered response. So when 350 comes knocking, they can say, we're not going to divest because we've got an alternate view. We're going to invest in renewables. We're going to divest. Well, there you go. There's that mm. word. But we're going to actually sell out of the companies that are going bankrupt mm. because Peabody, for example, is down 96 in the last five years, it'll go bankrupt pretty quickly if the current policies that the management of that company are pursuing remain in place. And likewise, almost every coal mining company in the Western world has dropped a similar 50, 60, 80, 90, 98%. So the transformation's happening in the financial markets anyway. It's about prudent management at the board and at the trustee level. Okay. Well, look... We're nearing the end now. Um, this is the Beyond Zero Emissions Show, listeners. Um, this radio show reports on citizens. Quite often we report on what's happening in the community regarding climate action. And we report on citizens struggling to stop the likes of Adani and Shenhua locking on and all that. Climate denialists, we also try to take them on. And wind farm antagonists, you know, the um, what they call the landscape guardians for a while. They were quite prominent. But country people, I notice, are very concerned about local impacts like coal from the coal trains all around the Hunter Valley and um, fracking in the north of New South Wales with Santos. And Tony Windsor spoke on the program just last week about damaging the underground waters and how you cannot actually get a scientist to say that is guaranteed that won't hurt that underground water that we depend on. Um, I think city people are mostly outraged just about climate change being exported so gaily from um, our shores when we know it should be still, the coal at least should be kept in the ground. So people are locking on, they're divesting, they're going to court and I wonder how does this play out in the world you operate in, in the financial circles? Um, does it really matter and if it does, what more can citizens do? I think it absolutely matters. As you mentioned, there are all sorts of motives from whether it's straight out protecting your capital as an investor, whether it's protecting our water as a country, um, whether it's protecting the farming lands. They're all different sorts of motives. But at the end of the day, the irony of it is that Adani in five years' time should turn around and thank us for having not allowed their project to go ahead because if it had... If it does go ahead, they would be investing $10 billion. So they've already invested $1 billion. 
1.3 billion on my calculations they have another 10 billion to invest by not allowing them to make a stupid financial decision where is she saving their shareholder funds so they should actually turn around and thank us in five years time when they realize we've actually helped them save their shareholders from losing their shirt financially mm. and ultimately the delay that all of this action is working towards is actually saying sooner or later these companies will wake up realize that the renewable push the energy efficiency push the energy security push the pollution push are all effectively united in moving towards a lower emissions um, economy that's inevitable and so we're actually saving Shenhua, Adani, Coal India we're saving their money by actually preventing them investing in dud deals. Is there anything more citizens could do in a more savvy more financial way to um, either delay or promote the uh, future that we would like to see? At the end of the day, we're all voters and we all have the right as Australians to ask our politicians, every individual politician, what is their view and what are they doing about climate change and what are they doing practically about it? Because if they don't have a view, they shouldn't be in government. This is a strategic national risk for Australia and every politician is there to represent us. We, as the voters, should be asking our politicians what is their view, what are they doing about it if they don't have a view then we should get rid of them individually. Because I don't care whether they're Liberal, Labor, Greens, mm. they all got to have a view because Australia needs a view. OK, well, the last question is, one of the big messages from this report, I'll just quote from it, said, economic impacts resulting from global decarbonisation will be positive for this country. Australia should maximise the opportunity, not minimise it. Could you speak to that? What are your final thoughts? Um, tonight we've actually got uh, Professor Garneau speaking and I had the pleasure of talking to him a couple of weeks ago and he's a huge proponent at that point saying that obviously a transition creates risks and opportunities. Australia has the best wind resources in the world, we have the best solar resources in the world, we have the best geothermal, deep geothermal admittedly, um, we have very good tidal resources. In fact we've got more resources renewable resources than virtually any country in the world and we have very effective financial markets huge depth of financial wealth we have the engineering and scientific capacity and we've got the best renewable resources put those three together australia will be a global renewable superpower as soon as we actually grasp the opportunity so there's a really bullish note to end on uh, that's professor garno's view and i'm with him Thank you. So we've been talking to Tim Buckley from the Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis, IEFA. Thank you very much, Tim. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions on Radio 3CR. And that is indeed a very bullish optimism optimistic note for Tim Buckley to end on. A uh, global renewable renewable superpower could very well be Australia's future if only our politicians would wake up and, and get on the the bandwagon. So that's the Beyond Zero Emissions show for tonight. We'll see you again next week at the same time at 5pm every Monday and our sister show plays on Friday morning at 8.30am. That that show on Friday morning, the Beyond BZE show, is focused much more uh, purely on technical and the science issues uh, around climate change and climate change solutions and for the more technically minded, uh, if you haven't already listened to that, you should. A couple of things to leave you with tonight uh, a few thoughts uh, for action for your own action. There is the People's Climate March 
coming up on the 27th of November at 5.30pm. People are gathering outside the State Library. Melbourne is just one of many cities in the world who are putting together a, um, a, let's call it a protest voice, to the leaders attending the Paris Climate Summit. It's it's a very good chance to be part of uh, uh, the Melbourne March and to show the world that we're not the backward country that one may have thought internationally based on our politicians over the last couple of years. So get out there and uh, make your voice heard. On the same theme, there's a group called uh, Action Factories who every Thursday and throughout November at the Australian Conservation Foundation uh, getting a volunteers group together for the People's Climate March. So that's at the Australian Conservation Foundation Level 160 Leicester Street, Carlton. Uh, I'm sure if you Google the ACF, you can find your way there. And they state in their flyer that they're sharing their wins from the week, brainstorming creative ideas to get the word out, reassess their tactics, and then break off into separate activities, then eating pizza. So that might be worthwhile popping popping uh, along to if you have some time to get motivated for the People's Climate March. Finally, 3CR has a diary out, a 2016 diary called How to Make Trouble and Influence People. It's 150 pages featuring 366 radical dates in Australian history, plus dozens of images and stories covering strikes, protests and political mischief-making from across Australia and throughout history, and it's very worthwhile. All profits go to 3CR and to Ecuador's Los Cedros Biological Reserve. So you can uh, buy that online, go to the 3CR website, or there is a launch being held this Friday between 6 and 8 p.m. at the Friends of the Earth Food Cooperative in Collingwood. That's at 312 Smith Street. So that's that's it for the show tonight. Uh, thanks to Alex Smith from Radio EcoShock for bringing us Daniel Murdiaso and Vivian interviewing Tim Buckley, the director from the Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis, a website well worth going to, uh, given Tim's views. And thanks yet again to the team who make this little radio show possible. Miwa, Jody, Teddy, Roger, of course, Vivian. And next up is Save Albert Park. Here's Archie Roach.